Now I know how Dana feels. <laughs> Welcome. It's great to see you all here today. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you. My name is Tom. I have an opening question for you. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Why does gathering to worship Jesus matter? Why does singing songs about our Father, the Lord God Almighty, why is that important? Why does it matter that we pray these prayers or that we read these psalms, that we give praise to God at all? Why does it matter? I mean, are we just gathering to tell God things that he's already well aware of? Is that what's going on? I mean, do we just sing to hear ourselves sing? Some of you do, and I know some of you do not. (laughs) Do we just play because we like to play things? And not just Sunday morning when we gather, but what about during the week when when we stand and we gaze at the skimmer horn, as I try to do at least once a day? Or maybe we look long down the valley toward Kootenai Lake, and we find within ourselves Something wells up and we just want to say, wow, God, you are amazing. I mean, look at what you did. But when we do that, are we telling him something he's not aware of? Are we saying something new? Are we saying something important? What's going on when we worship God? I think it's a relevant question. It's a relevant question for us who have followed Jesus for a long time. It's also a relevant question for anyone who's just exploring faith or new to the church because you've been wondering What exactly is going on around here? I came to hear something, but they're singing songs. It's like I'm only familiar with songs in bars. I've had a few to drink. This is weird. And so it's a relevant question. Why do we gather to worship? Well, that is what we're exploring today. We're eight weeks into this TBH, to be honest, Psalms series. We've been going through this collection of 150 songs in the middle of the Bible. And these Psalms are helping us become more honest And we're exploring how becoming more honest then makes us more healthy. And when it comes to honest worship, everything we've been exploring so far gets drawn in. That Honest worship is actually the culmination of what we've been saying or praying or singing as we've traveled these weeks through the Psalms. And if you've been reading the three Psalms a day, if you actually started at the start and kept to it, guess what? You're done tomorrow. Show of hands, anyone who's going to be done tomorrow? No, 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 no. That could instill certain pride elements into the mix. You would be done tomorrow if you started on October, uh, what was that? The first? The seventh? Well, I don't know when we started, but I did do the math. Tomorrow you would be done. Honest worship is the culmination of all this. Well, how does honest worship, though, make us more healthy? Today we're going to answer that question by looking into Psalm 115, asking, how does honest worship make healthy worshipers? It's on your insert in your bulletin. You can look it up on your phone, turn to it in your Bible. We're going to go through Psalm 115 today. Here's how it starts. Not to us, Lord, not to us. But to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. This is a great way to start honest worship. It's a great way to put it. That when we worship, 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then at the very least we are saying, God, this is about you. This is not about me. It really is all about you. The, the songs that we sing and the reason that we gather and the prayers that we pray and the praise that we offer, it's not about us getting some glory or some perk. It's actually all about you, Father. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you, Holy Spirit. And starting like this, I think, challenges us because of the ways, let's be honest, we do tend to think of worship, particularly worship gatherings, as being, well, at least a little bit about us, right? At least that's how we often evaluate it. We evaluate worship based on things we like and don't like. Have you ever been guilty of that? Because I have. Ways that we analyze or criticize what's going on based on, let's be honest, our preferences. But when we gather, the first words from our lips should be, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And not only when we gather for worship, but that actually extends, that becomes an anthem for our lives, that it extends throughout our whole lives and our priorities so that we can say, not to us, Lord, you know, in our home, not to us, Lord, but to your name be the glory. In our work, in the work of our hands or our minds, not to us, Lord, but to your name be the glory. In our relationships, in our, in, in our marriage, in our achievements, or the things we're going after, our goals, that somehow we're saying, this is not about me. This is about glory to the one who loves us, the one who reigns over all. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. Well, then the psalmist places our worship of God in the context of the worship of other gods. This is where he goes, verse 2. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Now, did you hear about the, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't help, but remember a story I heard at Alpha about the two boys who were constantly getting in trouble. These are these little troublemakers. Their mother was at wit's end. Some of you can perhaps sympathize. So at wit's end, did not know what to do with these boys who were constantly getting in trouble. And so she had a brilliant idea. She was going to take them to the pastor. Now, their pastor apparently wasn't a milk toast like me, and so he was the kind of pastor that was constantly putting the fear of God in everyone, okay? And so she decided, yes, I'm going to bring my boys to the pastor, and hopefully he can, you know, scare some godly sense into them. And so she brings them, and they're out in the hallway, and she goes in and, you know, kind of briefs the pastor what's going on. He's an imposing fellow. He's one of those guys that sits behind a big desk, and he rains down hell, fire, and brimstone across that desk whenever needed, sometimes when not needed. And so the boys, one boy files in, the other boy is out in the hallway. The boy comes in, he sits down at the chair across from the desk, and the pastor just looks across his desk, and he leans in, and he looks at the boy for a full, solid 30 seconds. And the boy is just withering there. And then the pastor asks one question. He looks the boy in the eye and says, Where is God? And the boy feels the hair stand up in the back of his neck. And he shrinks lower in the seat. And he does not know what to say. And he just stares at this guy. Well, the pastor holds it for about 15 more seconds. And then... He raises himself slightly out of his chair and shouts the question, 
Where is God? The boy broke. He couldn't handle it. He got up and hit the door running. And as he ran past his brother in the hallway, he said, John, get up and run. We're in trouble because they've lost God and they think we have something to do with it. Where is their God? But when you hear that question, where is their God? What do you think of? In our day, this question could be, and I think we actually hear it as that, kind of a question maybe from an atheistic perspective, as though they're asking, well, okay, show me your God. I mean, I don't see him, and if I don't see him, I don't believe he exists. Kind of like the Russian cosmonauts who I've heard being atheists declared they'd been out to space, had looked around, God wasn't there, and therefore God didn't exist. But this isn't actually an atheistic question. Atheists didn't exist back then. It's not as though these other nations surrounding Israel were skeptical about God's existence. No, it's actually, hear this, it's actually an atheistic accusation. Quite literally, these nations are saying to Israel, don't you believe in God? I mean, how come you don't believe in God? Where is your God anyway? Now, let me ask you, why would they be saying that to Israel? Why? Shout it out. Why would they be saying that? Why would they look at Israel and say, um, folks, what are you, atheists or something? Don't you believe in God? Why would they say that to Israel? And why not? They had no idols. There was no images. They, 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 they couldn't see statues or figurines or These things weren't used in the worship of Yahweh. They weren't used in the worship of God. Yahweh, the true God overall, he was not worshipped with golden calves or wooden statues. In fact, worshipping that way, whether it be to the true God or false gods, worshipping with images like that was expressly forbidden by God himself. Do you remember the 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 first two of the Ten Commandments? Anyone remember them? They're on the screen. First one, no other gods before me. And the second... Just that God's like really, really clear with them. He adds to it. And you shall not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them and worship them. No other gods and no idols. So the nations surrounding Israel, they look at their imageless, idolless worship and they think, okay, no idol, no image, no God we can get our hands or our eyes on. Like, where is your God? I mean, seriously, folks, if you can't point out your God to me, is he really real? If you can't feel him or see him or touch him or feed him or whatever, is he really there? You know, if your God falls in the forest and no one's around, is oh, no, that's a different one. Ancient worship practices were all image-based. Idols were everywhere in the ancient world little carvings and trinkets and statues representing uh, the gods that were worshipped so they could bow down and worship that idol as a god. These are examples of Baal and Asherah, which are very common in the, in the, in, in the time that the Israelites were in, in, in the land. And there was always you know, lots of shapes, lots of sizes, but there was always a god you could point to particularly in a certain region. They'd worship certain types of gods. Usually there were many, many gods that you could point to, and they, were, they kind of represented every imaginable concern from fertility to food to protection. Except 
when you turned and looked at Israel. Any foreigner traveling through would look and see absolutely nothing and wonder, what are, what's up with these guys? Like, what do they worship? I don't see statues. I don't see images. I don't see idols. I mean, there's a tent over there. I don't know what's going on in there. Later on, an impressive temple. Yeah, and there was lots of symbolism and color and metal, but there was no image of God that they would worship. And so the psalmist takes this cultural question, where is their God, to drive home a key difference between the false worship of idols and the true worship of Yahweh. The God we are worshiping, Israel declares, is not some local deity fixed to one spot and represented by some metal or some wood. No, the God we worship is the God overall. Our God is in heaven, as they say. And he's totally free, he's totally sovereign, he's totally above, and he does whatever pleases him. In worship, then, the people of God proclaim the love and faithfulness of God, as well as the sovereignty and the universality of the one true God. Israel gives honest worship in contrast to false worship. And this is where the devastating effects of dishonest worship becomes clear. This is where the psalmist goes. Listen to this. We'll continue on in Psalm 115. So he says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases them. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak. Eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. Feet but cannot walk. They cannot utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. The psalmist is contrasting the worship of the living God with the worship of a dead one. And this contrast was super important for Israel to remember because not only was Israel surrounded by idol-worshiping nations and groups, they were always tempted all along the way to opt in to this kind of worship. You see that cycle repeated over and over again throughout the historical and prophetic books of the Old Testament. This kind of worship always seemed a bit more real to them. They were always tempted because it seemed more beneficial. Frankly, it was the kind of worship that met my needs. It kind of, you know, it feels more experiential and real to me. And they would always go for that. It it seemed like that kind of worship would serve their preferences. It was quite literally the kind of worship you could get your hands on. And so the prophets and the poets were constantly jumping up and down to try to remind people why this kind of worship was dumb and damaging. Damaging to their health and just a dumb thing to do. Well, first they would say the idols are dumb. You can hear it right here in Psalm 115. You can see it in other places. But let me read for you a super treat from the prophet Isaiah in in chapter 44. Uh, He just riffs away, and it's pretty delightful. Listen to this. So Isaiah starts off in uh, verse like 6 or earlier, maybe 3. He says, in God's own words, God says this. God says, I am the first and the last. There is no other God who is like me. And then the prophet launches into his critique. He says, how foolish are those who manufacture idols? These prized objects are really worthless. The people who worship idols don't know this, but they're all all put to shame. Who but a fool would make his own God? 
an idol that cannot help him one bit. All who worship idols will be disgraced, along with these craftsmen, mere humans, who claim they can make a god. They may all stand together, but they will stand in terror and shame. The blacksmith stands at his forge to make a sharp tool, pounding and shaping it with all his might. His work makes him hungry and weak. It makes him thirsty and faint. Then the woodcarver measures a block of wood and draws a pattern on it. He, he works with chisel and plane and carves it into a human figure. He gives it human beauty and puts it in a little shrine. He cuts down cedars. He selects the cypress and the oak. He plants the pine in the forest to be nourished by the rain. Then he uses part of that wood to make a fire. With it, he warms himself and bakes his bread. And then, yes, it's true, he takes the rest of it and makes himself a god to worship. He makes an idol and bows down in front of it. He burns part of the tree to roast his meat and keep himself warm and says, Ah, that fire feels good. Then he takes what's left and makes his god a carved idol. He falls down in front of it, worshiping and praying to it. Rescue me, he says. You are my god. Such stupidity and ignorance. Their eyes are closed. They cannot see. Their minds are shut. They cannot think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect. Why? It's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat and used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a god? Should I bow down and worship a piece of wood? The poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that can't help him out at all. But he cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? Wow, how's that for devastating critique? But do you see his point? Why would you worship a God who's so useless? Why would you worship a God that you made yourself? I mean, you were created to worship a God so much bigger than you. You were created to worship the God who created you. Idols are dumb. The prophets and poets, on and on. But second, idols are damaging. Let's go back to Psalm 115. And the poet then goes on to talk about the effects of the worship of this kind of God. He says, worshiping a deaf idol produces deaf people. Worshiping a blind image produces blind people. Idolatry renders worshipers deaf and mute and helpless and lifeless. And in my books, that is the very definition of unhealth. And why? Because they have become like the gods they worship. When people would worship the god Baal, characterized by power and manipulation and sexual violence and abuse, well, these Baal worshipers would become exactly like that. Violent, sexually abusive manipulators. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. And this brings us to a biblical principle that you will see all through the scripture. Humans become like the god or the gods that they worship. Humans become like the God or the gods that they worship. Who we worship shapes who we are. Makes a lot of sense because we're told that as humans we were created in the image of God. This is crucial to our understanding of what it means to be human. But this imaging God business isn't just a statement of like um, a something set in stone. It's not an unchangeable fact. It's actually the statement of a dynamic process. Something that shapes us as we worship. That the more we look at the God that we image, the God who made us, the more we will look like him. The more we fix our hearts and our minds on the, on the God who created us, 
on Jesus who loves us, on the Spirit who fills us, the more and more we will become the people that God created us to be. But, and this is very crucial to understand, the more we worship a false image of God or a false idea of God, the more we we worship a God who is really the figment of our own cultural or religious imagination, the more we worship an idea of God that is frankly untrue, or or just dead, or unresponsive, or cruel, the more we will actually be shaped into the image of that God. This is super important to understand. I don't know, do you find it? We shouldn't find it that difficult to understand. I mean, if people start looking like the dogs they love, is it really strange that we start to look like the God we love? Because we become like the dogs we worship. I mean, we become like the gods we worship. And this brings us to the damaging part. When people worship false images of God, whether that be a literal you know, stone, wood, or an idea of who God is or God isn't. When people start worshiping a false image of God, they end up hurting people. In the Old Testament, idolatry and oppression, worshiping false gods and then abusing other people, always went hand in hand, again and again and again, which is why the ancient prophets were always railing against one or the other, but usually both. And the logic is simple. When people start worshiping false images, when they start worshiping images of God that they've created or dreamt up, then they will turn and start abusing the only images of God that are allowed in creation. That's you and I. That's human beings. Human images of God... This is very fascinating considering God's total prohibition against the creation of images. Human images of God were the only God-ordained images of himself that were allowed to be present in creation. Human images, we as human images, we were created not only to worship God, but to then reflect his goodness to the rest of the world. And if that idea intrigues you, I encourage you to go back and listen to a series that we explored back in April and May of 2017. I think the next picture shows it. Just remember, remember the graphic. Um, if you go to the we- our website, ericksoncovenant.ca, and you go to the sermons tab and you drop down and you look for images of God, we explored this extensively in this series. So I just want to highlight that for you if you'd like to explore that further. But here's what would happen. When the people of Israel did end up forsaking the first and second commandments, which they did over and over again, their idolatry would lead inevitably to them breaking all the rest of the rules, all the rest of the commandments too. They were deaf and blind to God's true nature, and they would end up killing and stealing and lying and destroying each other as a result. And so then when God would send prophets to warn them, to say, look, that way is destruction. If you keep going that way, you will be destroyed. As he sent warning after warning after warning, guess what? They were unable to hear. They were unable to see. They were unable to respond to the truth. They were unable to be really made aware of the warnings or the reminders because they had, no surprise, become deaf and blind, just like the gods they were worshiping. And so it's with all of that as a backdrop. That was just the uh, introduction to the message. The call of the Psalms, then, is to worship the true and living God. 
the one who made the heavens, the earth, the sky, the sea. And again and again and again, we're called to turn our lives and our hearts to the worship of the true living God who has revealed himself in the story of Scripture, who has ultimately revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who has sent his spirit to live in us. We are to turn our eyes and hearts and minds fully toward him and away from anything that is false or compromised or untrue. We're called to honest worship. So the rest of Psalm 115, all you Israelites, he's talking to the people of God, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord. But the earth he has given to mankind. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Honest worship is everything. Because who we worship shapes who we are. We worship the God who created us so we can live as God created us. And as we pray and read and hear and sing, even these psalms over and over and over again, we are drawn to worship the true and living God. As we allow those psalms to draw us to Jesus, to point us to the ultimate fulfillment and revelation of who God is, we are drawn to see and respond We're given words to tell the truth about who God is in honest worship. And we declare it. Even when we're discouraged, even when we're just disoriented, even when we're confused, we declare the truth of who God is, that he is the creator of all, that he is sovereign over all time and history and planet, that he does marvelously and surprisingly and wonderfully take an interest in us, that he, in fact, has created us to rule lovingly rule in his name and he's acted in history through jesus to rescue us from sin and brokenness we praise god with the whole truth we declare who god is and this honest worship as we continue to do it daily and as we gather it gets down inside of us and starts changing everything we see so friends why do we worship it's only as we regularly faithfully, passionately worship the God who created us. Worship the God who rescued us. Worship the God who has come to live in us by his spirit that we are reformed and reshaped and remade more and more into his image. Or, as the New Testament puts it, transformed by the Holy Spirit into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Honest worship catches up everything in our lives. And the more honest the worship, the more healthy the worshiper. I had four quick points, but I'm looking at the time. and Yeah, not enough time. You can put it on the screen. There's four ways the Psalms invite us into worship. I'll just rattle them off. Through honest worship, we give praise for who God is. We call others to join in the praise. We remind each other and ourselves that God is worthy of worship no matter what's going on. And 
through honest worship, we link up with the rest of creation. If you want my notes, I can give them to you. There's more there. You guys have not been praying enough for me because my sermon didn't get any shorter this week. I asked you last. I'm just kidding. That's my fault. But honest worship, it catches up everything we've seen so far in the Psalms. Our honest thanks, our honest need, our honest perspective, confession, anger, everything. It lifts us up as we lift our hands and our voices and our minds and our hearts to God. And we join our voice with all of God's creation to give praise to him because he is our great king. We've been offering at the end of every message an integrating practice for the week ahead. And I'd like to offer you one today. I would like to invite you to take one of the creation, actually you can take any psalm you want, but take one of the creation psalms, psalm, I got a couple of suggestions on the screen there, um, Psalm 98, Psalm 104, Psalm 148, there's a bunch. Take them, take one of them this week and read it outside, shout it outside, sing it outside, whatever, mumble it, but say it outside. I want to read a quote from you that I've uh, shared before, I think, or I've certainly shared it online. And it's from Wendell Berry, who has lots of good writing. He says, I don't think it's enough appreciated how much an outdoor book the Bible is. Thoreau said it was a book open to the sky. It's best read and understood outdoors. And the farther outdoors, the better. Or that's been my experience of it. Uh, Passages that within walls seem improbable or incredible, outdoors seem merely natural. It's because outdoors we're confronted everywhere with wonders. We see that the miraculous is not extraordinary, but the common mode of existence. It is our daily bread. Whoever really has considered the lilies of the field or the birds of the air and pondered the improbability of their existence in this warm world within the cold and empty and stellar spaces will hardly balk at the turning of water into wine, which was, after all, a very small miracle. We forget the greater and still continuing miracle by which water, with soil and sunlight, is turned into grapes. Take a, take a psalm this week, a creation psalm in particular, and go outside somewhere, your front yard. Load at night and look at the stars. I, I, I've been enjoying Mars so much. Malcolm and Mike and I were in a hot tub on Friday night. We were admiring Mars uh, out there, which has been there just the longest time. I love it. And so go out, read a psalm to Mars. You know, that, hey, the psalmist does it all the time. Praise the Lord, you stars. Praise the Lord, you heavenly beings, you know. Just, just give Mars a little direction. He needs it. Take a, a psalm into, into the street. Take, take a psalm somewhere outside and, and, and read it in praise to God. And I think you'll experience something transformative as you do. Well, where do we go from here? Simple. I think the call is to lean into honest worship. Let's keep praising God for who he is. Let's let the truth of who he is fill our hearts and our minds and our voices. Let's keep gathering to give honest worship to the God who loves us. The God who has redeemed us through Christ. The God who has given us his Holy Spirit. Knowing that as we do, we will be shaped and formed into the images he's created us to be. Which in the end will make us look a whole lot more like Jesus. And looking like Jesus, my friends, well, that's the answer to the question that we've been looking for, for how honest worship makes healthy worshipers. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. And we do worship you for being the Lord God 
Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The one who has acted in history to reveal and, and to, to win and to, and to rescue people from sin and brokenness in this planet from its demise. And we give praise to you and glory to you, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Would you, Father, send your spirit upon us, your people, so that as we worship you in spirit and in truth, we would be continually transformed into the image of your son, Jesus. We want to give you honest worship. We give, tell the truth about you because of who you are and what you long to do through us for the world. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you can stay for coffee and enjoy connecting and visiting, but also next week.